hundreds of years ever before Isaiah 53 gave us all the details of how that blood sacrifice will be made, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Hundreds of years before uh, King David ever spoke of the fact that Messiah would die on a cross in Psalm 22, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we are in chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul gives his Jewish audience an example that they'll be able to relate to, that of the great patriarch of Israel, Abraham. Just as believers today look back at a risen Savior, those who were justified in the Old Testament days looked forward to a coming Messiah. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy addresses the fact that when the Bible tells us in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, that belief was not in the promises of God, but in God himself. I came home one Sunday afternoon and on my answering machine was a lady who had left a message and she said, Dr. Brogy, I have it. For the first time in my life, I understand how to be forgiven and how to be saved. What clicked it for her? An open Bible. A promise from God Almighty. She understood the promise in the Word of God. And that's the thought here. Then he believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now I find it interesting that it does not say that he believed that he would have a whole lot of children. No, he believed in the Lord. And if you don't get anything out of Romans 4 by the time we're done, and we'll probably be here at least five weeks, just know that the Bible teaches that all people in all of human history have only been saved one way by grace through faith. That there's not a single sinner in the history of the world that has ever been saved by anything they've done. So we need to ask a question. When the Bible says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, precisely what was it that he believed? Did he understand anything about the coming Christ, about the Messiah? Of course he did. Turn back a few pages to Genesis 12 in your Bible. Genesis chapter 12. I want to remind you that God had been working in this man's life now for some time. Genesis 12, notice how the chapter opens. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now he's 75 years old when he says this. Leave the comforts of your home, your family, your friends, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And then God promises him in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Emphasis is found in the original. How could every family on the face of the earth be blessed through Abraham. Only one way. And that is if through Abraham, Messiah is coming. That is if through his seed, there's going to come one who will be the savior of the world. You say, well, did Abram come to understand this is a messianic promise? And the answer is yes. You say, well, how do you know that? For the same reason, I know that in Genesis 6 through 9, that during that hundred plus years when Noah was building an ark, 
that he warned people to repent. And I'm sure his ministry didn't totally fall on deaf ears. There were certainly some whom we know during that 100-year period who believed. But on the day of the great flood, on that day when it came, there was only eight believers in all. You say, how do you know that he preached that message? We don't read anything about Noah preaching in the Old Testament because the New Testament tells us. God gives us divine commentary that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so God gives us some divine commentary on Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. If you want to go to Galatians 3, turn there or just listen. Galatians, if you're in Romans, don't lose Romans. Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians and then you come to Galatians. Now remember, the Lord Jesus said, said of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus said that Abraham understood something about his day. He tells us plainly that Abraham saw Messiah. Now I want you to learn something, if you don't already know it, very interesting from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, the theme is sanctification by grace. And so what Paul does in Galatians, because these people who are not lost but who are saved, but a little confused on how to grow, he takes them back to their starting point and he reminds them how they started. And he says that's how you continue, by grace. And he reminds them of the false teachers who had infiltrated the church who were teaching a different gospel, another gospel, which is really not another because there's only one. And he says these are the people who are confusing you. So you're listening to people who have started wrong who are giving you information on how to grow and you don't need to do that. So that's the theme of Galatians 3. And so he speaks of our great salvation here in verse 6. He says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or credited, same word, to him as righteousness. What is he quoting? What we just read in Genesis 15, 6. He is reading the same passage of Scripture. Paul studied Genesis. We should too. Notice verse 7 of Galatians 3. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who have as the object of their faith the same person that Abraham had, they're the children of God. You say precisely do, did, who did he believe in? Verse 8. The Scripture, the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, non-Jews, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, don't miss that here in verse 8. Underscore in your mind those two words, the gospel. And maybe if you don't have it out there already from prior studies, write 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 in your margin. Now, please note, he doesn't say that Abraham just had gospel or good news preached to him. But he had the good news. And in every translation, NAS, King James... English Standard, NIV, Net Bible, ISV. It all says the same thing, the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Well, Paul defines it for us. And if someone asks you what the gospel is, you ought to be able to say it in three words. Death, burial, resurrection. Now, I made known to you, brethren, not just any good news, but the good news, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you didn't have a genuine faith, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
And when, according to Galatians 3, 8, did Abraham first have the gospel preached to him? When God said, all the nations shall be blessed in you. That's Genesis 12 and verse 3. Now, it's obvious as you read Genesis that in Genesis 12, when he's 75 years old, he doesn't fully grasp it all at that point. But at the age of 75, he responds to what he does understand. Pack up, get all your servants, all your belongings. I know you've been here 75 years, but it's time to move. And he responds to what he knows in faith. And it's the biblical principle that light responded to brings more light. And so God is working on him and he's drawing him to himself. And so 10 years later, he takes him outside of his tent. He says, no, Eleazar is not going to be the heir. One who's going to come from your loins and Sarah's body, that one will be the heir. And all the nations will be blessed in him. So shall your descendants be. And it clicks. In the New Testament theology, we'd say he got saved. He was born again. The whole thing comes together. He realizes a principle that goes all the way back to the garden when man through his own works righteousness creates his own fig leaf religion and God allows the first death in the universe to take place through the shedding of blood. It clicks that Messiah is going to come through his loins. And so we're told that Abraham believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, in a split second of time reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now I also know for a second reason that Abraham understood the plan of salvation. And the second reason given in Scripture is we know that Abraham was a prophet. Not just was he a, a great leader, he was a prophet. Genesis 20 and verse 7. Remember a fellow Abimelech? God appeared to him in a dream and Sarah, uh, Abraham said, Sarah, you know, she's, she's, she's my sister. He tells his white lie. She's actually his half-sister. And uh, God warned him, this king in a dream, as she was being prepared in the harem, now therefore restore the man's wife. Why? For he is a prophet. You say, what's the significance in the fact that Abraham was a prophet? Because as a prophet of God, we learn in the Bible, Prophets of God understood the meaning of the blood sacrifices in the Old Testament. And of course, God is going to give him a, a dress rehearsal for Calvary when he takes Isaac up there on top of Mount Moriah. Isaac, whom the New Testament says is a type of Christ. We're going to worship and we will return. He believes he's going to come back with Isaac because he believes that where he got Isaac to begin with in the deadness of Sarah's womb, he's going to get him back again. He knows he's going to sacrifice him, but that God from the dust and the ashes will raise him back up. And Isaac, as you study the passage, beautifully pictures Christ. And so we know that Abraham saw God's day, and we know that every prophet of the Old Testament understood something about the blood sacrifices. And Peter tells us that in the New Testament. Let me read to you a verse from Acts 10. Peter goes to this fellow's house by the name of Cornelius in a seaside town called Caesarea, and he says, we're witnesses of the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one 
who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. And of him, of Jesus, all the prophets, that means Abraham, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Believe on the coming Messiah was the message of the Old Testament prophets and you will be saved. Believe in his blood atonement and you will be saved. You say, what does that have to do with Abraham? Everything. Because he is one of those prophets and without exception, every single prophet of the Old Testament from Abel, the first prophet, to Zechariah, the last prophet, bore witness, Jesus said, of this truth. God has only had one way and all of time in saving people, and that is through faith in Christ. And so Paul, back here in Romans 4, go back to Romans 4, I haven't forgotten it. Paul, back here in Romans 4, wants to remind us that his teaching of justification by grace alone through faith alone is not some new invention. It goes all the way back to the first book in the Bible. It's 2,000 plus years old, really by Paul's day, 4,000 years old, because it goes all the way back to Adam. And so God preached the gospel years beforehand, hundreds of years before God ever told the prophet Micah that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Hundreds of years ever before Isaiah 53 gave us all the details of how that blood sacrifice will be made. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Hundreds of years before uh, King David ever spoke of the fact that Messiah would die on a cross in Psalm 22, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. It was written down. God had revealed it to Abraham, to the gospel. And so the Old Testament believers look forward. We look backward. It's one way of salvation. Okay, that's the illustration of Abraham's faith. Secondly, very quickly, the application from Abraham's faith. Now back here in Romans 4, just so no one has any question as to the true nature of genuine faith, Paul draws out the significance of this word reckon. Remember, it's a financial term, to credit to one's account. And if you think about it, there are two ways in which you can have money credited to your account. You can either earn it, and it's put in your account, or it can be gifted to you. And Paul's going to illustrate that in Abraham's case, it's the latter. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. Now most of us in some way are employed we may have a board over us, a company over us, if we're a CEO, but uh, at some point, because of the work we do, we earn our paycheck. And so someone gives you your check, and you don't, they don't say, here, here's a gift. You say, gift nothing. I just put in 50 hours of blood, sweat, and labor. I've earned that money. But here's Paul's point. To the one who works, his wage is not credited or reckoned as, as a favor, but what is due? That's one way of having money put to your account. The other way, again, is credited as a gift. And the only way that God can save you because your best efforts fall short is to have it credited as a gift. Verse five, but, very strong contrast, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Three things that makes a person or a person who is credited as righteousness. Number one, they don't work for it. The guy who's working for it, who's trying to earn salvation, is basically saying, I'm good enough. Number two, they view themselves as ungodly. They view themselves as a sinner. But again, it's not enough to say you're a sinner. It's not enough to say that you're not good enough. 
You have to come in simple faith. You have to believe in the one who reckons you as righteous. Now, recently I was witnessing to a person. They said, well, that's Paul. You know, that's Paul. Paul taught salvation by grace alone through faith. But Jesus, this person told me, taught salvation by works. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> you know, they, they read the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, that, that's how you get saved, you know. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. Do it good enough, you, you'll make it. So what did I do? Well, I took him to Numbers chapter 21. You know that passage? The children of Israel are out in a place called Edom. Edom is current day Jordan. I mean, it's a dry, desolate place. And they're out there in Edom and they start complaining and they say, oh man, back in Egypt we had it so much better. There were melons and there's plenty of water and they begin to complain and we read, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God says, you want something to complain about? <laughs> I give you something to complain about. And so the God who is the master over all of his creation calls the snakes. And they come from all over Edom into that camp. They're everywhere you look, in the tents, in the kitchens where they ate, everywhere, and people were dropping like flies. So people come to grips with their sin. So the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. They said, we repent, seek God's grace that he may remove the snakes. So we're told, and Moses interceded for the people. And God comes up with the most unusual remedy. If you know your Bibles, God dictated that Moses make a snake in the likeness of the one that bit them out of bronze and set it high on a pole. Because remember, there's some two million plus people that leave Egypt. And God wants any man, woman, boy, or girl to be able to see it. God never intends to hide his plan of salvation. He always wants to reveal it. And dads and moms and grandfathers, next time you're behind an ambulance and you see that uh, snake on a pole, Use it as a teaching tool because that's its origins. It comes from the book of Numbers. And it's a well-documented fact it comes from that. There's some new folks in the ACLU of coming up with a new invention. But historically, that's an unquestionable fact. When I was a little boy, my dad was a medical doctor. And on his license plate, he had that pole with a snake wrapped around him because he was an MD. It was a symbol of healing in medicine. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on the standard and it came about if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now you can't beat a deal like that. The poison is flowing through your body. Your children, your wives, your cousins, your relatives, your friends are all dying. You hear about this pole outside there in the community lifted up on a high in the air and God said if you just look, you will live. Now, sometimes to emphasize the truth, you emphasize what it does not say. It does not say that they were to make their own remedy. It does not say that they were to help each other. It does not say that they were to fight the snakes. It does not say that they were to pray to the serpent. There's no society for the prevention of fiery serpents to be established there in the Israelite camp. It doesn't say they're even to make an icon like it and to, to carry it around. We were in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre a few days ago, and in that church, the Roman Catholics believe in this place, Jesus 
died and this rock he was laid and, and this place over here, all in the church under one roof, he was raised from the dead. And so in that place where the body of Jesus supposedly touched this rock, I see all these Catholics and Orthodox people and they're taking these uh, crosses and rosary beads and all this stuff and they're laying it on the rock. They're emptying out, they're laying each one on the rock as if somehow I guess some magical power is going to emanate from the rock into the rosary beads and they put it back into their satchel. No, uh, people have all kinds of weird and perverted ideas. Do you know that there's enough genuine pieces of the cross that have been found, I suppose, to build a 20-story building? <laughs> people want little replicas. They want to light candles and, and think that that stink that emanates from it, that God says, wow, man, I'm really impressed. But that's not how it works. And if you remember, hundreds of years later, they end up dragging that snake through the desert into the promised land. And when King Hezekiah is in charge, he's 25 years old, Numbers 18.2 says, and in 18.3 it says, he did right in the sight of the Lord. And in verse 4 of that chapter, it says, he removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah, those idol altars, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses has made. For until that day, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. I mean, what a statement. I was in the Ukraine several months ago, and my son-in-law and I were sitting in a restaurant in a mall, and we're getting ready to fly back to the States, and this hungry lady from Romania came up and asked us if we would buy her a meal through our translator. So we bought her a meal. And we shared the plan of salvation with her. And then she clung to that cross around her neck. She says, I'm fine because I have Jesus right here. I said, you don't need him around your neck. You need him in your heart. And the only way you can get him in your heart is by receiving him as your Lord. And so here in the desert, you know, there are people who probably thought this was foolish. We know they thought that. Because many perished even after God had raised up the snake on the pole. And the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, the Bible says. People say it's too easy. And it's their own ugly pride that will keep them from humbling themselves and admitting that they need a provision. So centuries later when God meets a very religious man by the name of Nicodemus telling him he needs to be born twice to enter the kingdom of God Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And then the most quoted verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him, look and live. It's not what you do. You cling to a promise that God gave and he's able to give the promise because of what he has done. And again, Paul wants us to understand in Romans that it's not enough to know these facts. Milton in his book goes on to say, look, the facts given. He, by the way, he was a Baptist preacher and the president of that university. But the facts given are, are not enough. You have to apply it. That's the seventh law. He says the confirmation test of all good teaching is pointing the student to application. That's what Romans does. It's not enough that Jesus died. That doesn't save you. You have to believe. You have to come through faith. 
You don't become a scholar by sitting in a room of scholars. You don't become drunk by sitting in a bar room. And you don't become a Christian by sitting in a church. You must come to faith in Jesus Christ. During the 1920s, there was a man during that time who would take a heavy metal cable as we've witnessed recently in our own country once again, and stretch it across Niagara Falls. And people would come and watch him and throw money in the hat and absolutely amazed. And on one occasion, George Benson, he actually took a wheelbarrow and he rolled it across the cable. And then he put 100 pounds of sand in it and he rolled it across the cable. And one little boy, he's looking up, he's absolutely enthralled by the whole thing. And he says, do you think I can do it again? He says, I know you can do it again. I've seen you do it. I, I, saw, I just saw you do it with 100 pounds of sand. He said, then get in. Now, I suppose that boy's still running. I don't know. <laughs> now, you can say you believe, but not really believe. And some of you here this morning, you wonder whether or not if you dropped dead and had a heart attack in this service, whether you'd go to heaven. See, you can say you believe, but you have either rested in the completeness of Christ's work or you haven't. You can't be half saved or 75% saved. You're either saved or you are not. And it's the single biggest decision you'll ever make. And I hope if you haven't made it, that you'll make it in the next moment. And if you have made it, that your lips this morning will be open in praise and worship and ready this week to tell someone. Because there is a heaven and there is a hell and it's coming probably sooner than most of us realize. Now our Father, thank you this morning for your word. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray for someone here who's never trusted the Lord Jesus as their Savior. You said today is the day of salvation. The only thing between them and you is a simple step of faith to believe in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus that his death and resurrection totally, eternally paid their debt. Thank you for your promise that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. If you've never done that, I don't say this to scare you, but it's what the Bible reveals. This may be your last chance. Because the Spirit of God will not woo you and deal with you forever. And the interests you had enough to come to this place this morning could be gone this afternoon forever. Today is the day God says to be saved. Would you, in simple faith, say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, our Father, you've given us the book of Romans. We know it was originally written to your people to save people for many reasons as we've been discovering, but one reason is to give us an apologetic, a defense for why we believe what we believe. So help us to learn in these days and not just to gather more information, but in this brand new fresh week in obedience to the commission that you've given to every child of God that as we go, we are to make believers of all peoples. Help us to be looking, longing, watching, praying, for someone to whom we may be a witness to. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.
to listen again to today's study entitled The Salvation of Father Abraham, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and look for program ROM17. You can also listen to it through our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 to request a CD or DVD copy. Well, we've seen the salvation of Abraham, and tomorrow we'll begin a look at the salvation of David. Join us then as we search the scriptures.